Hey, if you're enjoying this show, uh, consider supporting us on our Patreon. You can get cool perks like access to these episodes a week before they go public, and you can pick an album for us to review. Any support is greatly appreciated, so if you feel inclined, go to patreon.com slash polyphonicpress. Polyphonic Press, the podcast where two music fans pick a classic album completely at random and analyse it track by track. Using the patented random album generator, they are given an album to review from a curated list of over 1,000 classic releases spanning multiple genres. And now onto the show. Here are your hosts, Jeremy Boyd and John Van Dyke. Hey, welcome to Polyphonic Press. I'm Jeremy Boyd. I'm John Van Dyke. So we have the uh, random album generator in front of us, so let's not waste any time and see what album we're going to be listening to this week. And the album we're going to be listening to is... Jackson Brown, Late for the Sky. Okay. You know, I'm only passingly familiar with Jackson Brown's stuff. I've heard, you know, Doctor My Eye and stuff. He's worked with, like, everybody and their uncle. Just one of these musicians' musicians. So this is what it says on uh, allmusic.com. On his third album, Jackson Brown returned to the themes of his debut record, Love, Loss, Identity, and Apocalypse, and amazingly delved even deeper into them. For a dancer, a meditation on death, like the first album's uh, song for Adam, is a more eloquent eulogy. Father On extends the moving on point of uh, looking into you uh, before the deluge is a glimpse beyond the apocalypse evoked on uh, my opening farewell and the second album's uh, For Every Man. If Brown had seemed to question everything in his first records, here he even questioned himself. Uh, For me, some words uh, come easy, but I know that they don't mean that much. Uh, he sang on the opening track, Late for the Sky, um, and added uh, farther on, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, yet his seeming uncertainty and self-doubt reflected the size and complexity of the problems he was addressing in these songs, and few had ever explored such territory, much less mapped it so well. Uh, The Late Show, the album's thematic center, doubted but ultimately affirmed the nature of relationships, while by the end, after the deluge, uh, if only a few survived, the human race continued nonetheless. Uh, It was a lot to put into a pop music album, but Brown stretched the limits of what could be found in what he called the beauty in songs, just as Bob Dylan had a decade before. Uh, That certainly places this in the, you know, 1970s. Yeah. So this is his third studio album. I think Doctor My Eyes was uh, earlier than this. I think it was on the previous album. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not that familiar with Jackson Brown either. Like, I'm familiar with some of the hits. I think I'm mostly familiar with some of the stuff he would do occasionally with, like, um, David Lindley. A lesser known name, but someone more familiar to me. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, produced by Jackson Brown and Al Schmidt. Um, a few uh, pretty major people played on this one. You've got uh, Dan Fogelberg, Don Henley, David Lindley, Terry Reed. Cool. Let's get into the album. 
Okay. The, there's only eight songs, but they're kind of long. So the first song on the album is the title track, uh, Late for the Sky. All right. That was, a, that, I was pretty impressed with that. I have a feeling this is going to be, this album is going to be a little bit more on the mellow side because that's generally what he's kind of known for, which is just fine. But uh, obviously the production, again, it's got sort of a, a dry production, that 70s dry production, but it's not bone dry like you would get sometimes. It has a lot of room to breathe. Yeah. It's spacious, but dry. Right. Which I don't, yeah, that's a perfect way to describe it. And uh, what I like about it is there, I don't think there was anything that needed to be added. And I don't think there was anything that could have been taken away to make the song better. I think it was exactly what it needed to be. The piano, obviously Jackson Brown is playing the piano. And then you have the organ in there, which is acting sort of almost like a string section. It's got almost like that chimey, almost like a bell, bellish sound kind of going in the background. Yeah, I love that sound. And then, you know, the, I was th- thinking like, it's a slower song, uh, but I didn't feel like it was dragging on. Like even the guitar solo, I thought, you know, it was a long guitar solo. It was like over a minute long, but I d- it didn't seem like self-indulgent or like the guitar player was showing off or anything like that. It was it was really just like, you know, this is part of the song and it's going on for a long time, but it doesn't feel like it's, you know, like some guitar solos that, that tend to go on for a while. It's like, okay, yeah, we get it. You're a good guitar player. It was like this, the solo was long, but it that's kind of what the song needed. Yeah, it was almost like, it's almost like singing its own verse, you know, playing its own sort of a melody. It wasn't so much a solo as it was like uh, an extension of the song, like like almost like a second singer or something like that coming in and, and, and playing a melody as opposed to, uh, yeah, it wasn't exactly flash bang, but that's not the point. Uh, you know, honestly, I think if they had done a solo where it was sort of like a counterpoint where it was like a full distortion i don't think it would have fit in this song at all <laughs> i think it could have fit but it would need to be really short maybe i would be wanting to change things around in the song a little bit to sort of fit around it a little better though but that's not what he's going for clearly we are thinking about like se- sequencing an album like what do you want the opening track to be do you want it to be something that's fast and to capture the listener's attention or do you want to you know sort of ease into it and i think i don't know because it's hard to say what the the rest of the songs are this might be the outlier and maybe totally different from the rest of the album i don't think so but uh, i'm not sure if it's the right song to open the album i don't know find it i will find out anyway the uh the next song is called Fountain of Sorrow. Okay, so I'm a little torn with that song because there were moments where I thought, okay, it, c- it could end here. Yeah, it was a little on the long side. But then I also, I liked the the instrumental part towards the end where it... It sort of stopped and then re-entered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's 
it's interesting. Like, and I've heard it said before that sometimes Jackson Brown albums can, it, they're one of those things I think you have to be in the mood for them. Because if you're not, they kind of sometimes kind of feel like they might drag on. He's a really talented songwriter. But yeah, if this is the sort of stuff that you, you actually want to, you know, put on and listen to, and, and honestly, he's good at it. So then, you know, that's great. It's fine. It's good. It's not party music unless you're like, you know, lying on a beach somewhere or something like that. Uh, but I, th- I think that's all that's true for a lot of like 1970s singer songwriter albums. Well, I was going to say this, this song especially kind of reminded me of like uh, early Billy Joel stuff. What was that story about uh, Jackson Brown? I, they they told it in the that Eagles documentary. How I think Glenn Fry was renting the apartment above Jackson Brown, and you know he would get up at you know nine o'clock in the morning or whatever, and you know he would make coffee or tea or whatever, and then he would sit down at the piano and play the first verse to a song until he got it. And then it just over and over and over and over. And then he would move on to the chorus or another part. And it was driving uh, Glenn Fry nuts because he was getting annoyed at hearing the same thing over and over and over again. But he also thought, well, that's how, well, that's how it's done. That's how he writes these amazing songs. He's a musician himself. He, he gets the struggle, but it is a hard thing to live with if you're not the one doing it. In fact, even being the one doing it, it could drive you nuts. Like... There's lots of times where you get an idea, and in order to get it right, by the time you get it right, you're sick of it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I've I've been there many times. It's like you know, telling a joke a hundred times in your head. And it, it, it's also uh, when you're stuck. It's like you know, I've got these chords; they work really well. Now what? Like, where do I go from there? My trouble is always with lyrics and stuff like that. I I don't trust my own judgment on good lyrics. Yeah, neither do I. Sometimes, like, I get a good line, and I say, okay, that's a good line, but I hope everything else that I'm kind of putting down around it is, you know, isn't, like, I hope it's at least passable and not just, like, mediocre or worse. (laughs) Mediocre, or it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm pretty good at things making sense. I'm very straightforward. I'm not a very cryptic person. I'm not sure I could do that quite the same i'm not like a Jimi hendrix or something like that I, I think bob dylan said you know he doesn't like to actually say what his songs are about because he doesn't want one they're sometimes they're pretty personal and two he doesn't want to ruin people's interpretation of his songs he wants to leave it up to the the listener to create their own you know meaning behind the song although generally you can figure it out it's not that hard with some of his stuff yeah well i mean blood on the tracks i mean that's his divorce album that's pretty obvious <laughs> you know a lot of the stuff he was writing about was like you know potential of like bombs and wars and stuff like that and and sometimes he would just lay out an actual story like he would actually go back in history and find this like really tragic tale and then I don't know. I haven't really been paying too much of attention to the lyrics on this, but I think I think Jackson Brown might be the same way. Yeah. Like if you take Doctor My Eyes, like he could be I mean, singing. What does that phrase even mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like what is he saying? I think what it's is... just an exclamation, honestly. It could be, yeah. 
there's no rules, basically, is what the, the point is. There's no rules for songwriting. Anyway, so moving on to the next song. Uh, the next one is called Farther On. That cool. was marvelous. That was great. There was some really great guitar work on that. Well, that's... As soon as I heard it, I'm just like, well, that's David Lindley. <laughs> it could have only been like two people, and it was either David Lindley or... or um. Ry Cooter and Ry Cooter's not on this album so it's David Lindley and it just sounded a little bit more like him anyway although his tone was kind of like Dwayne Allman especially on like uh, Derek and the Dominoes album but uh, his playing the slides he would make and and just the little like nuances it's just so David Lindley it's just the way he plays pretty unmistakable that's one of the things about that I love about I don't want to say older music, but like guitar players, it's, it's, they, they, they have their own distinct characteristics and I can always tell when it's, you know, I can always tell when it's Mike Campbell or when it's uh, Jimmy Page, they all have a certain way of playing. I can pretty well tell the difference between like uh, Jack White and um, uh, Dan Auerbach, Kevin Parker of Tame Impala. I can... I can identify their tones. They're they're pretty. They've got a pretty distinct sound themselves. So it's not like you know, unique guitar playing is completely out there. Guitar people in the guitar community, they're all about gear. And the truth is, really, a lot of the tone comes in comes from your fingers, um, and the way you play. I would only search out gear if I'm looking for a specific sound. But as far as tone goes, I'm. I'm generally pretty happy. You know, you provide me an amp, I'll find a tone I like on it in most cases. But if you're if you're, you know, looking up Jimi Hendrix and what his rig was and you duplicate his rig, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed with the fact that you're not going to be playing, you're not going to sound like Jimi Hendrix because only Jimi Hendrix can do that. You know, only he can play like that. You have to find your sound. You have to find how you play and what your sound is. I, I guess, okay, for a lot of guitar players, I can see how maybe that's like, as like a hobby, that's a fun thing to pursue. But if you think this is going to make you the guitarist you want to be, I mean, in like the, uh, in pursuit of any sort of like career or something like that, you're much better off just doing your own thing. You can you know, use these things as inspiration and stuff like that. And, and there's nothing wrong with trying to play it as close as possible. But if you're beating yourself up because you can't sound exactly like it, it's a waste of time. The guitarists that are going to stand out, they're standing out. And you, you don't stand out if you sound like someone else. And so, you know, it's always interesting, like, bringing it back to this song. It's like you can always, like you said, you can tell when it's David Lindley playing. And, you know, and that's, I mean, yeah, he's playing slide guitar and that was just something he generally did. He didn't always play slide guitar, but he played slide guitar a lot. Right. But I mean, on the, on this, on this song, he's playing the slide guitar, but you, you still, you can still tell that it's different than, than another slide player. But it's interesting. Like, you know, I'm used to like when he's playing slide, he's. Uh, he he often had like uh, an electric mellow bar. I don't know what he's playing on this, but it sounds almost like he's playing on Dwayne Allman's Les Paul. <laughs> but I don't know what he was actually playing on this time. But he's usually playing like these 
crappy old Tysco Del Rey's, or he's got that one mellow bar, which he loved to use, which is like shaped like a flying V. It's a lap steel sort of guitar, but it was like angled, the, the fretboard's angled up a little bit, so you play it, your hands, almost like you would on a dobro or something like that. So he's playing that. Or he would be playing a lot of these, like, he, he collects, like, weird acoustic instruments and stuff like that and would play that. And I remember hearing some of the stuff on his album where he's playing slide. You can hear just, like, the movements of his fingers and, and where they are. I could hear that in this, despite the fact that the tone and, you know, the overall sound is different. That's what, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like 90% of tone is in the fingers. The, he is credited as playing lap steel guitar, so I'm, he might have been playing the lap steel on on this song. But, you know, and the, and the thing, too, is, like, the guitar isn't getting in the way of the song, either. No, it's complementing it. Exactly. It's sort of weaving in around the uh, the vocal line. Right. He knows when to come in, and he knows when to pull back. <laughs> anyway, moving on. The, uh, so the next song on here is The Late Show although I don't think it's a tribute to David Letterman. So the next one is uh, The Late Show. thought I heard a car door slam, and then another car door slam. And then an engine. <laughs> and then an engine. He's singing about that Chevrolet, which I'm assuming is what the cover is supposed to be depicting, because that is a 53, 54 Chevy. I liked that song. I'm having a hard time connecting with a lot of these songs, to be honest. It's, again, it's, it's that mood thing. I'm sort of just sliding into the mood just a little bit now. I mean, yeah. I think David Lindley kind of helped me along with that other one. Um, I, oh, this song, I was also going to say, you could definitely hear Don Henley in there. I was just sure. going to say that, too. Yeah, you can definitely hear his voice in there. Pretty unmistakable. Yeah, it's the sort of thing, you gotta be in the right mood for it, and yeah, I'm sort of starting to slide into that. Like, if you can, like, visualize a little bit, it, it's a little bit easier. I guess so. I, I, I mean, the, the elements are all there, but I, I don't know, for some reason I'm just having a... It's a slow album. And it's, yeah, it is. And it's frustrating because I, I want to connect with it. It's obviously, I mean, a lot of effort went in here, and there's... Nothing really to complain about, except it's just hard to connect to because, I don't know, maybe it's just the way I'm programmed anyway. I generally like something with a little bit more upbeatness to it, at least something mixed in, like mellow song after mellow song after mellow song. is It's a little hard. Like, if I'm going to listen to that, I got to be in the right mood. Almost anything else, if it's got a mix, I can put it on and be, you know, happy with it. Yeah, I get that's fair. Cuz yeah, like I said all the stuff that I like is there like the slide guitar. Maybe the, maybe as the album goes along. No, this is the halfway point. So yeah, so let's uh move on to the the next one. Uh the next one is called The Road and the Sky. That was a little more upbeat. And I think if I were sequencing the album, I would maybe put this one in the number three spot and replace, like, switch this one with number three. Yeah, and just shuffle three and four down to four and five. Yeah, it would have helped to uh, sort of pick it up. Um, unless he's maybe split the album in half, whereas, like, there's the mellow half and the 
raunchy half. That's possible, too. Yeah, because this is the first of side two. That one sounded almost like an early Eagles track in, the, in a lot of yeah. ways. A little bit more in the guitar going on, because this is still, like, it sounded like Eagles before Joe Walsh was pushed the guitar work. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, probably this is, might be my favorite song so far, just because it's more, you know, upbeat. This is, this is the one that, that's finally sort of given me a little bit of the pick-me-up, but I think my favorite's still probably farther on. I don't mean farther on the album, I mean the song farther on, number three, because of David Lindley's work. I just think he was brilliant on that. Yeah, and some of the lyrics were, were funny too in this one. Something about going to clear this planet. Well, it's about the end of the world, really. Yeah, the, the, as they were, we were saying uh, when you read the uh, that read-up on it, yeah, they were mentioning there's a certain amount of apocalypse imagery in here and stolen Chevrolet. I, I was thinking, well, if he's going to clean it up like the Bible, why on earth did he steal a Chevy? <laughs> and I'm guessing, well, if, if I guess if it's apocalyptic, then the, probably the stolen Chevy doesn't really necessarily belong to anybody anymore, so... so. Just take it. Might as well be his. <laughs> Mad Max it out. Is it the same blue Chevy on the cover? <laughs> Probably. Why not? Yeah, why not? No, is is that's is a different one. He's got a whole collection of them. Once that he's stolen over the. No, uh, this was uh, this was a welcome um, change in the uh, tone of the album. I think the opener is fine. I think, but if this song had appeared earlier on in the album. Yeah, you would, would keep your attention a little more focused for... Yeah, just to mix things up a little bit. No, I agree. Yeah, if I was sequencing it, that's what I would do. I, I always prefer to mix your slow with your fast. It's a whole other thing, trying to decide what songs go where. and It's possible he's got a sequence to his songs, too. Like, they're supposed to be chronological or something like that, in which case it would be harder to place a song differently. Even though it worked better for the flow of an album, the story would be all messed up because suddenly you've got like your, but what date? Didn't that guy die? Or something like that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's possible. Yeah. But I'm just saying as a fan and as a listener, if this song had been, for me, it would have made the album stronger. No, I think I, I sort of agree. As long as the songs aren't just standalone, then I think that absolutely, you know, could have happened and it would have been a little bit easier to so the next song is a song called i think i this was a single it's a popular song this is called for a dancer and it's uh i was just reading about it it has a unique connection to saturday night live uh the song was played at memorial services for both john belushi and phil hartman um, and Jackson Brown performed it at Phil Hartman's uh, memorial. Here we go. Okay, I can see why that's a popular song. That was pretty good. I th- I think that might be my favorite song on the album to go, you know, with the status quo. <laughs> yeah, the elements all fit together really nice. Again, he seems to be a master at that, making sure everything, you know, slots in nice. There's nothing missing and nothing that shouldn't be there that was david lindley playing the violin by the way the guy is talented up the wazoo i think you know getting back to the our discussion about sequencing the album 
I think if because that followed the the fastest song of the road in the sky, if this song had come before it, I probably wouldn't be as into it as I am. Yeah, that's that's possible. Yeah, it it's a good place to put it. It's not something I'm I'm gonna like you know crap on him about or, or complain or anything because it's it's totally legit. It's just not necessarily what I gravitate to. But having something thrown in once in a while, it's nice, especially just because he's just so good at uh, mastering the craft. He knows exactly what he's doing, and you know, like uh, that story about playing the the you know the verse over and over again before he gets it, and then working the song out over and over and over. Jackson Brown seems like very similar to Paul McCartney uh, in how he writes a song. And watching that Beatles documentary, it, it, I think Paul McCartney is pretty much the same way. He kind of like works a song out and you know, just kind of goes over and over and over until he gets it right. Whereas the opposite approach is John Lennon, where he just hears a song. Yeah, except... <laughs> yeah, John Lennon could do that. But, you know, there's times where he would definitely work things out, too. Like, I've heard a lot of demos. I think John Lennon was more intuitive, and I think it kind of came more naturally to him, whereas Paul McCartney had to kind of work at it. You know what I mean? And so, I, I you know, th- those are just two different approaches. Yeah, one of my favorite stories of the Beatles writing songs is uh, Obladi Oblada. Yeah, Paul had brought the song, and it was sort of almost like it's like had more of a swing thing. And he kept going through this, and he couldn't get it right. And then John Lennon was like, "Oh, for pity's sakes, play it like this!" Gets behind the piano, dun 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 dun. dun, dun. <laughs> Bingo! There yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I think I think what uh, Jackson Brown is more of a a Paul McCartney sort of approach to things, and he I think he, you know, he's good at it, and and uh, but he's more like you know, let's work it out until it gets there. You can tell in the way these songs are kind of all planned out and the way that there there isn't, you know, there's no second guessing. This is, it doesn't seem, it doesn't feel like these are just improvised. It feels like, you know, every part of it was, was planned out. Yeah, uh, he's obviously got uh, a discipline because it takes a discipline to write songs like that. Like if you don't have the intuition, you need the discipline. And it's interesting when you have the two different um, styles of writing sort of play off each other, where you get some very interesting ideas. Yeah, imagine if he had like a, a John Lennon figure to counteract off of, who would come along and say, you've got too many slow ballads, you need to th- play this song like, dun 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 dun, <laughs> whatever, right. you know what I mean. Maybe if he was in a band or something, that would work. But it wouldn't. It's this is his album, and this is you know his his statement that he wants to make. So we've got two songs uh, left. Uh, so uh, the next song is called "Walking Slow." Ironically, that's one of the more uh, beat songs on the album called "Walking Slow." That was that's another one of my favorites on the album, I think. And then again, it's another upbeat one to the pace of the the album a little bit. And it's got more very obviously David Lindley playing. It actually has almost sort of a a Lowell George effect. It sounds a bit like a Little Feet song or something like that. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I didn't think of that, but yeah, you're right. 
pretty decent. I have no idea what that buzzy sound was in there. Though. That was a jug. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. It's uh, Fritz Richmond. Okay. Apparently, he's a well-known jug and uh, wash tub bassist. It just, it sounded, I don't know, maybe it's just the setup I've got here. It's at the, it didn't come out sounding like a jug to me. It came out sounding like a distorted uh, flatulence, actually. That's what it sounded like, yeah. Okay. I was going to say that, yeah, it does sound like that. I saw your face sort of giggle a little bit first time it showed up. And I'm thinking, yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit of a strange Yeah, it, yeah choice, it was, but, but yeah. it didn't hurt. No. It didn't hurt the song at all. I think it was actually kind of cool. It gives it a, a playfulness to it. You know, which absolutely fits the mood of the song. Yeah. I don't know if this is my favorite. It seems my favorite parts of this album is the David Lindley stuff. <laughs> the stuff that really features him. Because I guess I'm just like, a huge fan of his style of playing and stuff like that. Um, not that I dislike um, Jackson Brown's, like his stuff or anything like that. David Lindley has a thing about just, I guess he's that uh, John Lennon character to him in a lot of cases. Sort of give it a little bit more of an upbeat because I do think he was a little bit more of a, an intuitive writer. So it's funny how we were just sort of talking about that, and uh, he kind of did have that character. But he wasn't always there. You know, he's not part of the band. He's part of the musicians that play on this album, but he's, it's not his album. It's, it's, he's just, you know, supporting Jackson Brown. Is this, is this where David Lindley started as a session player for Jackson Brown? He was doing session work for a lot of different people. I think, uh, yeah, I think the Crosby, Stills, and Nash album, one of them. One that came along, I think, in the early 70s or something like that. He was playing on that, too. Um, I can't remember which album it was or what it's even called. Because I know he did some stuff with Warren Zevon, too. Oh, absolutely. So the we've got one more song. We've arrived at the uh, final song on the album. And this is a song called Before the Deluge. That's a good album closer. That was a good song. It's a good song. It's kind of bleak. It is. And maybe I'm feeling a little extra because, well, the listeners who don't know, we're like the three weeks into that Ukraine bullshit, (laughs) which is pretty bleak. So, yeah, hearing some of that other stuff is, you know, it, it hits a little harder. But yeah, great sounding song. I love, again, David Lindley's playing, especially towards the end there when you you really started to hear almost like his guitar lines come through the fiddle lines. This song kind of, there were elements at least of it, it it reminded me of a Bob Dylan song. Like something from like maybe Highway 61. Nashville Skyline? Yeah, Nashville Skyline. That kind of period that... uh, or even even Highway 61 or Blonde on Blonde. Yeah, it, it sounded like you take out Jackson Brown's voice and you could put in Bob Dylan singing about, what's that, the fighter who wound up in? Oh, the Hurricane. Hurricane, thank you. That's the one. He's not listed, but partly, I guess um, that would have been uh, um, Don Henley singing in the background, but it sounded very Graham Nash. 
Yeah. It did sound very Crosby, Stills, Nash. Yeah, the harmonies Um, on that, yeah. I don't, it doesn't say who sang on this song specifically. There were, I heard some uh, female voices on there. Some women were singing. So it was uh, Joyce, Joyce Everson, Beth Fitchett, uh, Dan Fogelberg, Don Henley, uh, J.D. Souther. Those are the, those are the people who were list, are listed uh, as, as harmony vocals. It could be on, honestly on this song, the, the vocals were pretty full, so it could be all of them. But it had sort of like a Crosby, Stills, and Nash-ish harmonial sound. I'm inventing words here, maybe. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, for this album, I would say basically the second half kind of lifted things up. And I think it was just because of the the throwing the, the more upbeat songs in there. But, you know, I would have to go back and listen again to see if... It might you might be right. It might be just one of those things that you have to be in the mood for, not necessarily something you put on, you know, at any time. Yeah, but I I do I think I agree. I like the second half. I think a little bit better than I like the first half. But there's good stuff. Oh, I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with the songs. There's nothing really that I can complain about. It's just my maybe it is just the mood that I'm in right now, and that I'm not in the mood for this. Maybe the first half, anyway. Yeah, again, uh, second half makes up for it. Uh, an overall pretty good album. Uh, slow to get into it. I, I've liked Jackson Brown's... The, I know the hits, and I, I know... Like, I, I always like that song, Running on Empty. So yeah, I'm not, like, you know, anti-Jackson Brown or anything like that. If you want something that's, like, you know, breezy sort of thing, although kind of bleak, Maybe. <laughs> it's a little bit doomer in its subject matter anyway, but it's got a, a nice sort of mellow sound to it. It's, it's actually rather pleasant, especially when uh, you get to some of the stuff later on. It's, it's, it actually gets really good there. Um, and there's amazing playing, and it's mixed, like, perfectly. I don't think you could do better. Magnum Opus or It's been said many times that the third album is usually a really good album when it comes to... That seems to be the pattern. So yeah, so I guess we'll end the the show there. Thank you so much for listening if you uh, made it this far. Um, You can check us out at polyphonicpress.com. You can drop us a line there. And uh, you can uh, also support the show if you want. You can go to uh, patreon.com slash polyphonicpress. And uh, I think that's about it. Oh, you can also follow us on uh, Instagram at Polyphonic Press Music. I think that's what it is. Um, and uh, th- I think that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm Jeremy Boyd. I'm John Van Dyke. Take it easy. <laughs> <laughs>